Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. In this episode, we're going to cover the English surgeon Frederick Salmon, or Salmon, but I think I'll go with Salmon. His life's work was on the treatment of rectal disease, and fistula in particular, and he even established St. Mark's Hospital in London to focus on these diseases. This led to some conflict with the medical establishment, which lasted throughout his life. So let's cover the history of the surgeon who swam against the current, so to speak, in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Frederick Salmon was born in 1796 in the ancient English city of Bath, the sixth child of his family. Quick history note for those that don't know, the city is famous for its Roman baths, which were built to take advantage of natural hot springs there in the year 60 CE. The town's Latin name was Aquae Sulis, meaning the waters of Sulis, the local Celtic goddess of the hot springs. By the second century, the bathing complex held a caldarium, hot bath, tepidarium, warm bath, and frigidarium, cold bath. Frederick Salmon began his medical studies in Bath under George Norman, a local surgeon, and likely was influenced by a surgeon named William White, who worked at the city infirmary and dispensary of Bath, and wrote a book called Observations on Strictures of the Rectum. We'll see the connection in a bit. Following this early apprenticeship, Salmon went to London to continue his medical studies at the legendary St. Bartholomew's Hospital, where he obtained his licensate of the Society of Apothecaries in March of 1817. Quick note of explanation. The Worshipful Society of Apothecaries of London was granted a royal charter in 1617, and by the 18th century its graduates were given the right to practice medicine. The Apothecaries Act of 1815 gave the society the power to license and regulate medical practitioners throughout England and Wales. And just to complicate matters further, the word apothecary means a medical professional who formulates and dispenses medications, which we would call a pharmacist now, or a chemist if you were in England. The word comes from the Greek apotheke, meaning a repository or storehouse. All right, so once he obtained his license, Salmon became a member of the Royal College of Surgeons in April of 1818 and appointed house surgeon at St. Bart's. He also set up a practice at 12 Old Broad Street, where he began to take a special interest in rectal disease. One reason why this may be was due to his influence from his old teacher in Bath, as mentioned earlier. Many patients with intestinal diseases tended to congregate in Bath for the purpose of taking the waters. By 1827, Salmon began to specialize in surgery and was elected surgeon to the General Dispensary in Aldersgate Street that year, a sort of outpatient clinic. In January of 1828, Frederick Salmon published his first book called A Practical Essay on Strictures of the Rectum, which contained 188 pages. The purpose of writing the book, according to the author, was, quote, to prove that stricture of the rectum is a very common disease and that surgery furnishes us with means adequate to its removal or alleviation, end quote. In the book, he gave details of prolonged courses of treatment of rectal strictures by enemas, the use of bougies, and minor surgical operations. Now let's take a minute to talk bougies. A bougie is a tapered cylindrical instrument often used to dilate strictures in a number of locations, including the urethra, rectum, cervix, and esophagus. It comes from the French word bougie, meaning wax candle, which itself is named after the Algerian city Bougia and the tapered hand-dipped candles it made and exported to France. And now you know. Salmon followed this first book with another, this one called Practical Observations on Prolapsus of the Rectum, published in 1831, which showed a forward-thinking approach for the time. Now here's a quote. 
There are few diseases to which the human body is liable, more painful and distressing to bear, than that which forms the subject of the following pages, or one which, at the same time, I regret to add, is more common, yet less generally understood. This last circumstance is perhaps preferable not so much to a want of inclination on the part of the practitioner to acquire a competent knowledge of the subject, as from his inability to obtain it, arising from the delicacy of the patient, who too generally neglects to seek advice till the disease is fully developed. Hence, but a few opportunities occur of acquiring accurate information of the features presented during the incipient stages of the complaint." End quote. Salmon collected and studied postmortem specimens and realized that anatomy was the basis of physiology and surgical treatment of rectal disease. He gave some interesting recommendations, including warning against irritating the bowel with purgatives, but he did describe castor oil, declaring that nothing was better than enemas to promote regularity. He also declared that leeches were beneficial to the anus, a common practice at the time, but only for the bold. And quick side note, Napoleon once advised his brother Jerome in a letter to use leeches to prevent further development of his hemorrhoids. Salmon also marked the fact that even the name of the fallen out intestine, known up until that point as prolapsus ani, testified how little was known about the disease. The anus, as Salmon understood from his anatomical knowledge, was only the aperture into the intestine through the sphincter, which was a fixed point and therefore could not have been the movable or prolapsed part. While he tried to confront rectal prolapse with non-invasive methods, Salmon also described a surgical technique which could be considered innovative for the time. This involved using pins to transfix the intestine to prevent it from returning after removal of the prolapsed part. Salmon described the pain as insignificant, although that seems like a relative term in a world before anesthesia. Salmon did not publish books or scientific writings after 1834, but turned his focus to something that would leave an even bigger mark, pun intended, which you'll get in a minute. In 1832, Salmon resigned from the dispensary, along with several others, over a dispute with the committee concerning appointments to staff. Specifically, Salmon was protesting the attempt by the hospital governors to return to a system where posts at the hospital were essentially bought rather than earned by merit. The following year, as an active member of the Medical Society of London, Salmon was appointed to give the annual oration. Now, he used this platform to express strong disapproval of the recent behavior and general policy of the Royal College of Surgeons, and described, quote, the necessity for an entire change in the constitution and government of the Royal College of Surgeons, end quote, which happened on March 8th of 1833. Salmon's beef was that the Council of the Royal College of Surgeons was a self-elected body and was restricted to doctors whose practice was confined to surgery. He considered this a grave injustice and thought the college needed reform. In what was likely an intentional snub in response to this criticism, the Council of the Royal College of Surgeons elected some 300 members to the Honor of Fellowship in 1843, but Salmon was not one of them. He would continue to clash with established medical bodies and would be criticized for what would become his life's work. Unable to penetrate the closed world of medicine that was dependent on wealth and contacts, he decided to found his own institution. In 1835, Salmon bought 11 Aldersgate Street to serve as, quote, the benevolent dispensary for the relief of the poor afflicted with fistula and other diseases of the rectum, end quote. Quite a long title. At that time, only seven beds were available, so after three years, the charity was transferred to a larger space at 38 Charterhouse Square, doubling the number of beds, and expanded the outpatient clinics due to the increased workload. One funny story I came across was that this new site 
was at the edge of the Smithfield Meat Market, and the operating table in the new hospital was a butcher's table purchased from the market. Now, when this infirmary opened, his critics said there was no need for a special hospital to treat fistula. In fact, the traditional way special surgeons worked, in this situation fistula doctors, was that they would travel from town to town treating patients. But as the City of London grew rapidly in the 19th century, there was plenty of need for specialized surgical institutions. In its first year, the institution treated 131 patients for diseases such as fistula, rectal stricture, prolapse, and piles. If you don't know, piles means hemorrhoids and likely comes from the Latin word pila, meaning balls, as hemorrhoids can look like a collection of balls or a cluster of grapes. Well, now you know. While the medical establishment, including general hospitals, did not support specialized institutions, probably because they felt threatened, the fistula hospital was supported by bankers, lawyers, and merchants of the City of London. The first president of the hospital was William Taylor Copeland, the Lord Mayor of London in 1835, and the alderman of the Bishopsgate Ward in which the hospital was located. One of Salmon's private patients, who became a life governor of the hospital, was none other than Charles Dickens. He suffered from an anal fistula which he attributed to the consequence of too much sitting at my desk. Salmon operated on him in Dickens' home in 1841. Here's Dickens' description, quote, Last Friday morning was obliged to submit to a cruel operation and the cutting out root and branch of a disease caused by working overmuch, which has been gathering, it seems, for years, end quote. In gratitude, Dickens gave Salmon several autographed copies of his latest work, The Pickwick Papers, and contributed 10 guineas to the hospital. Before we go any further, let's talk a bit about fistulas, or fistulae. More specifically, we're talking about fistula in ano. A fistula, by definition, is an abnormal passage between a hollow or tubular organ and the body surface, or between two hollow or tubular organs. But that's pretty broad. Fistula in ano specifically is a hollow tract or cavity lined by granulation tissue that connects an opening inside the anal canal to an opening on the skin around the anus. Although these can be caused by a number of different medical diseases, most are thought to arise from a blockage of an anal gland which sit just inside the anus, leading to a perirectal abscess which then forms a fistula. Now, they've been around since antiquity, with the first reference to surgical therapy coming from 430 BCE by none other than Hippocrates. He was also the first to advocate for the use of aceton, now let's talk about that for a minute. Aceton comes from the Latin ceta, meaning bristle. It is a cord of some material that is passed through the fistula tract. Now this may be to help drain it, and Hippocrates probably used materials such as lint or horsehair. A cutting ceton is where the ends of the cord are tied together and periodically tightened, which over time cuts through the tissue, healing as it goes to remove the tract. Now this practice may date back as far as ancient Egypt. The Indian classical medical text Ayurveda, described by Sasruta, describes surgical treatments to cut out the fistula or burn it with either cautery or caustic chemicals. The Middle Eastern physician Albucasis wrote on the subject of fistula treatment, and the English surgeon John Ardeen in 1376 wrote Treaties of Fistula Inano, Hemorrhoids, and Clysters, which describe fistulotomy and ceton use. FYI, clyster is an old name for enema, which comes from the Greek word kluzine, meaning to wash out. A fistula in anal is notoriously difficult to treat, as well summarized by the English colorectal surgeon Sir Hugh Lockhart Mummery, quote, Probably more surgical reputations have been damaged by the unsuccessful treatment of fistula than by excision of the rectum 
or gastroenterostomy. And he later said with a bit more flourish, quote, The bad results of laparotomy are generally buried with flowers, while fistulae go about the world exhibiting the unsuccessful results of the treatment, end quote. Okay, back to Salmon. He continued to work essentially single-handedly at the fistula infirmary he'd established for 13 years until 1851. By that time, a new site for the hospital was purchased in City Road from the Worshipful Company of Dyers, and the existing Dyers Almshouse was adapted to provide beds for 25 patients. During this time, a new hospital was built, which was officially opened by the Lord Mayor of London on St. Mark's Day, April 25, 1852, and so was named the St. Mark's Hospital for Fistula and Other Diseases of the Rectum. The hospital was completely rebuilt between 1894 and 1896, and since then added to and expanded and finally moved to northwest London in the neighborhood of Harrow in 1995 and is still in operation to this day under the name St. Mark's Hospital. And this is speculation, but it seems reasonable. But there's an instrument called the St. Mark's Retractor, which is used in pelvic surgery, which is where the rectum lies, that I have to imagine was invented there. I tried to contact the hospital, but didn't get a response. As for Salmon, he retired from the hospital in 1859 at the age of 63, after operating on more than 3,500 patients with no casualties, according to one source, and went to live in his country residence called Woodfield Cedars, Ombersley, Droitwich, which is in the central part of England. He died on January 3rd of 1868 at the age of 72. A full-length painting now hangs in the boardroom of the hospital, which was presented to him on retirement, and as the ultimate tribute a group of his patients presented a bust of salmon to his wife in 1860 to show their gratitude. The controversies he created with his criticisms of some of the powerful medical groups and his willingness to create a fistula hospital on his own can be seen in the obituary that was published in the British Medical Journal, which has been described as having scurrilous innuendos. <gasps> Let's have a listen. It reads, quote, Mr. Salmon was well known in London as the founder of St. Mark's Hospital for Fistula and Diseases of the Rectum, and the author of monographs in the subject of these diseases. How far the course which he took was prompted by difficulties in pursuing a useful and honorable career in a general hospital, where his labors would have been more useful and more instructive, is now difficult to say. It was, we believe, contrary to the best interests both of the profession and of the public. And the success of St. Mark's Hospital was of unfortunate omen, and has since borne bad fruit in encouraging similar enterprises. Mr. Salmon acquired a great deal of influence in certain wealthy circles, and we believe enjoyed a lucrative practice. His professional practice was necessarily one of considerable isolation, but he was not without friends amongst men whose friendship is a guarantee of certain merit of character, end quote. However, the colleagues that worked with him and knew him better had this to say about him, quote, Thus passed from this world a man whose kindness of heart induced and whose indomitable perseverance enabled him to found an institution for the relief of the sufferings of his poorer fellow creatures, which will stand an honorable monument to his memory, end quote. All right, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, I'm going to try something a little different. At the suggestion of a listener, I'm going to review a book. In this case, it's called Christian Barnard, The Surgeon Who Dared. It tells the story of the South African cardiac surgeon who performed the world's first human-to-human heart transplant and became an overnight celebrity. The book focuses more on the man, warts and all, to quote the author. And speaking of the author, the book was written by Dr. David K.C. Cooper, himself a heart transplant surgeon. And not only did he write the book, 
Dr. Cooper will be my guest on the show. I'm very excited to get the chance to talk with him, and it should be a very interesting conversation, so don't miss it. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on this podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.